All right, good morning. How are we doing? All right, well, that's good. My name is Chris Pleckenpole. I'm the pastor here at Wells Branch Community Church. If you are watching us online for the first time, glad you're here. Uh, so glad if you're here joining us for the first time, glad you're here. I love pastoring this people. This is such a fun time and what a weird, uh, weird season of life. So if you didn't know, we're wanting to call back, elders are wanting to call everyone back to church. Um, not that it doesn't mean we're going to shut down our online streaming, but what it does mean is we want to see every, everyone's shining face back here, whether outside or uh, in, inside, by June, we said June 13th. So do whatever you need to do to make yourself feel comfortable being around a lot of people because we are pumped for your faces to be here with us because I just love and miss you. Now, if, any, uh, if you, you guys have any questions, uh, one thing that I love to do is podcasting. Uh, and so give me some fodder for that by uh, texting me your question here, and I will respond to those Tuesday-ish and post uh, on the post-sermon or uh, the Pastor Plex podcast. Looking forward to that. All right, so we're in a series called uh, Seals, Trumpets, and Scrolls, and we are unlocking Revelation. And if you haven't noticed this, that uh, starting, was it like, I guess, January-ish, we started, you know, began with the end of mine, and then we did another chapters four, five, uh, yeah, chapters four, five, and six. Last time we were in another chunk of Revelation again because we wanted to help you in a digest uh, Revelation slowly but surely, not take too big of a bite and you choke on it. It's kind of like my kids, like just take a small bite and chew it and then swallow. All right, and so because I know that sometimes when you read Revelation, it's a lot to take in and it freaks everybody out. I think last time we were in Revelation six, everyone sort of was in the freak out zone. But uh, this, it's not just a scary book. It actually applies um, to our life. In fact, I want to kind of help you wrestle with some of the things that um, I deal with as a pastor because, well, it's my job, right? So I get emails all the time, and here's one of the emails I got this week, kind of on a more heavier uh, feel. Uh, this person wrote, hey, I'm not a member of your church, uh, nor have I been to church period in quite some time. So there's this like framing of where this person is, not, a, not really a church person. My daughter has cancer. Yesterday, the doctors told us survival's not likely. And then the question that everybody has, why would God, why God, why would God put my daughter through such pain and sadness? I just don't understand. It has me questioning my faith. I just don't know what to do. And I'm absolutely heart broke. And so that's, that's, that's the reality that a lot of us are in. And we're all asking the question of like, why does death happen? And God, what are you going to do about it? And how can I trust you when I look around and I see so much awfulness around? And I think we all experience moments because really what this person is saying is things are not okay. I've never met this person, but if I were to meet this person, I would say the same thing that they're saying. If one of my sons got sick, I would say, I just want my son to be okay. Everybody just wants things to be okay. I don't need anything extra. I just want everything to be okay. And uh, this morning, um, I want to get into what happens and kind of where our brain goes and our faith goes when things aren't okay. Um, and it might be that we're not okay because we feel shame. And here's what I mean by that. And I'm not saying that this was what 
I don't know this person. But what happens in our life is that when bad things happen, we usually, not usually, we have a tendency to go, I must have done something to deserve this, right? Because a lot of people would say, well, you know, I'm just thinking about World Trade Center getting blown up uh, or getting airplanes run into it. That was because of the sin of our commerce or whatever. People have said something like that. Or when Katrina hit, that was the sin of New Orleans. Or, you know, like everyone wants to sort of put blame at a spot and say, that's God's wrath against that thing. And we're seeing it on display. And so when it comes to personal tragedy, what can happen is we can say, well, it must be because of something I did that this thing is happening to me. And, you know, can I just be real with you? I do a lot of counseling of people. And what I've found is if you've had trauma in the elementary years of your life, then you walk around with a lot of shame. And you can even get delivered by Jesus and still kind of go back, like retrofit your brain with who you used to be. And so everything is always on you. And you, you worry and anxiety starts to overwhelm you because what if I can't? And what if I don't? And that becomes the thing of people who are filled with shame. And there's a self-loathing that's involved with that. There's a, I can never be pretty enough, good enough, smart enough, achieve enough. It's never enough. Okay. And that's why one of the reasons we're not okay. Um, but then also we're not okay because of conflict. And um, if you've been married for any about two minutes, you realize that conflict is inevitable. It's, it's part of what happens if uh, conflict is a part of life. And, um, but what happens, especially in a culture where it feels like um, it's been amplified. Does, has anybody noticed in the past year and change since coronavirus hit and we didn't have any good sports to watch, uh, what happened was is that people's focus stopped going from one thing on a TV to each other and how different and how wrong and how angry that we are. All right, and so things became polarized and everyone became angry and things got divided. And, um, and maybe that division was always there, but it became really clear that this is a problem. And then sides were chosen. And Christians end up on two different sides. Families, husband and wife, two different sides of things, getting really fired up and angry at each other over like what has happened. Okay, so that reality happens and there's real conflict and real pain and that makes things not okay. Or let's just get right to the issue of pain, especially when we talk about death. Like when cancer comes, that, that causes you to, to th- things are not okay. Things are not okay. Look at what has happened to me. Things are not okay. And um, what happens if you, I'll say this, kind of the flip side of shame. What happens if you experience high trauma or high pain in your teenage years, what ends up happening is you become stuck in that victim mentality of, you know how teenagers are? Not that any teenagers, except for these teenagers right here. You guys are perfect. Uh, That what happens for teenagers, it's us against the world. My mom and dad don't know anything. Like mom and dad aren't smart again until you're 25. You know that. Like there's just something that happens like where they don't have a clue. They don't know what's going on. They don't understand. And then the put trauma on top of that and it sort of reinforces that idea. And then all of a sudden you get stuck there emotionally as a teenager. And all of a sudden you're 45 years old with kids of your own and you're parenting and you're trying to help your adult children grow, but you're still stuck at 17. And so I don't want to minimize pain because that is not it. There is real pain and real hurt and real anger and real frustration out there. And it is affecting us as a culture and as people individually. I mean, it's real. 
And so I want to get to how do we address that, especially when stuff, like, like how, what's the response to the person that wrote the email? My daughter has cancer. I mean, how do you give the right words? But if I can be honest with you, if we as Christians can't answer that, we need to pack it up and go home. Because if we don't have answers for life, death, and everything in between, no, like real answers, real answers that matter. If we don't have those answers, what are we doing? Let's just go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die if we don't have an answer for that. Okay, so that's, that's where we're going to go. We're in the, the book of Revelation, which, of course, it's like, how does Revelation hit this? To which I'm going to show you. But to get into Revelation 7, we have to review Revelation 1 through 6. And I'm going to do my, my bestest to review Revelation 1 through 6 in two minutes or less. You guys ready for this? So strap on, hang on. Here we go. All right, so remember, this is the gospel, right? So this is uh, pre-Revelation being written. Jesus came, died on the cross, buried, rose from the dead. Fun, right? Okay, then we put that on a timeline. And then what happens is that Revelation was written when John, the apostle John, was an old man hanging out on the island of Patmos in exile. And he writes, uh, this is called the church age, by the way, and he writes Revelation 1 through 3 to the churches that were contemporary to him. That had, that, this had the meaning specifically for them. And since nobody knew when Jesus would return, everybody was thinking he would come back imminently. But what we know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is that Jesus is going to rapture us before the uh, tribulation begins. To which you're like, tribulation, what's that? We are talking about that. Watch this. So first, this is, uh, we're going to be caught up in the air to meet Jesus. So don't think the rapture or don't think that Jesus has already come. We're going to go and meet him in the air. Great news. And then what's going to happen is that things are going to unlock for us, okay? And what we get a picture in Revelation 4 is the throne room of God or a vision of worship. And uh, for all the people who hate when we keep repeating lyrics and songs over and over and over again, guess what? It's in the Bible. So don't get mad at the messengers. We're just up here singing it because we do what the Bible says. Okay. All right. So uh, then Revelation uh, 5, we ask the question, who's worthy? Open up the the scroll that is like going to determine the end times, bring judgment and justice for the world. Thankfully, the Lamb of God that was slain, that's Jesus. And so you're, and then he does open up the scroll and that begins Revelation 6, and the tribulation begins. It's a seven-year period that's spoken of in the book of Daniel, and uh, it starts with there's seals opening, uh, yeah, there's seals within this scroll. And so Revelation 6, you got the first seal open. It's a a rider on a white horse with a bow. He conquers the world without firing a shot. He just has his bow as a threat, and he doesn't have to fire a shot, and that's how Antichrist moves. Now, speaking of Antichrist, have you guys been seeing the thing on Facebook where it's like the gospel challenge, and everyone's like, hey, just so you guys know, the Antichrist comes first, then the rapture. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's debate it, shall we? Now, uh, I don't want to start a Facebook war, because we're out of here before this happens, because here's why this is a big deal. Because God would never turn his wrath on people whom he's already saved. So if, let's just go from a pure logic standpoint, other than the verses that I've already shown you. Would God, it's double jeopardy. If you, you know, you, the Lamb of God, Jesus, took on the sin of the world and he absorbed the wrath for us. So why would he put on us wrath again? Now, that doesn't mean we wouldn't be martyred in this time, 
or we'll, we'll explain that in a second, but that does mean God's wrath is not poured out on saints because it was already poured out on who? Jesus. Okay, you guys got that. All right. So the Antichrist comes, or false prophets, false Christ come, and they, uh, the world order gets structured, and then next thing you know, war happens, and death is going on. This is the second seal of Revelation 6, and people are getting slaughtered wholesale. Then the next seal is, um, and this is famine, and you know, bread is gonna, a loaf of bread is going to cost 150 bucks, and it's going to be brutal, right? Life is going to get real hard. And then the next seal, uh, the fourth seal is going to be death and hell's coming with her. And here we go. Uh, you've got this reality of pain and hurt and angst and a lot of hell. And then what happens is the scene shifts from earth uh, where all these uh, seals are being unveiled to heaven and you've got an altar. And okay, this is my best little drawing, so don't judge it, okay? These are souls underneath the altar of God and they're wearing white robes. Okay, they kind of look like little aliens, but that's their souls, all right? And they're sort of disembodied souls, but they're given white robes to wear uh, because they um, were martyred for their faith. And they cry out to God, how long, God, until you will take care of justice on the earth? And then finally, what happens is uh, the sixth seal is unleashed and a great earthquake, the sun turns to black, the moon turns to blood, and just... It's this crazy, like, uh, natural phenomenon. And then the people are screaming and, and crying out to the mountains and rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And that's Revelation 1 through 6. All right, so, so now we're heading to Revelation 7, to which you're like, Chris, you got to turn the corner somewhere because that looks like a lot of bad stuff. And how are you going to talk about, like, you know, cancer at the same breath of wrath, and it doesn't feel like that's going to come together. And so that's why um, I'm going to hear to explain Revelation 7. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God to open up our hearts and minds. God, thank you for your word. And I'm praying that your grace would be sufficient this morning as we open up your word and seek you first, and we seek for you to transform our hearts. And God, I pray that we would not leave here just with the same old, same old view of Jesus, that it would be elevated and that our lives would be transformed by your gospel of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, Revelation 7, verse 1, here we go. After this, after Revelation 6, with the complete chaos that you saw at that, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, west, and holding back the four winds on the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And so what I believe the four winds of the earth to be, this is like they're holding them back. That's judgment coming down on the planet, which watch this. You'll see this kind of right here. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rise of the sun with the seal of the living God, which is just awesome. We're going to talk about the seal of the living God. And he called a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and seas, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. In other words, don't bring judgment until we have sealed the servants of our, servants of our God on their foreheads. To which you're like, what? So this is sort of a, a throwback to Ezekiel 9. Here's what's really cool. This is why, this is why you got to read God's word and seek God's word and study God's word. Ezekiel 9 talks about future prophetic uh, vision which Ezekiel has of an angel going around the city and putting in the seal of God on them. So when the destroying angel comes, he, over, he passes over them. Very much like 
Can anyone remember another situation like this? Passover, right? The, the Israelites took the lamb, blood of the lamb, they put it over their doorposts, and the death angel came, and they did, killed the firstborn of anyone who did not have the blood over the doorpost, and that's what sent the Israelites on their way. And so Ezekiel 9 is a propheticness of this seal of the forehead on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And this is why I fully believe that Israel is going to be fully in the end times as uh, a group, specific group of people that God has a special place in his heart uh, that he has not abandoned Israel for forever, uh, that right now in the age of grace, uh, that everyone receives uh, salvation by grace through faith. And even in this time, it's grace through faith in Jesus, but it's going to be specifically uh, the Jewish race of people that are going to be saved. But it's going to be because he makes them okay. And I wanted to show you that this is God's seal made his people okay. Now, do you guys know how we talk about Old Testament, how people had an interaction with the Holy Spirit differently than we do today? So in the the Old Testament, you didn't have like a personal relationship with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. You were a covenant people who joined yourself with the community of faith. And so that was the kind of the corporate worship thing is what made you personally saved. Beautiful. And then what happened with Jesus, he put, kind of put that on reverse, and that it was um, your salvation was sealed because the Holy Spirit indwelt you. Now, in the future, when the Holy Spirit, watch this, when in that First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 16, the Holy Spirit, the restrainer of evil, is pulled out of the earth. Okay? And so the Holy Spirit does not indwell believers anymore, but they are marked much like um, people had a relationship with the covenant community back then, but this way you're individually marked, but then not have an indwelling of the Spirit. Hopefully that sort of makes sense. But that is what God, that's what that God's seal would make his people okay for the tribulation saints, those that had not been raptured, to endure God's wrath. So when wrath would come from God, it would not affect them, much like it did not affect the Israelites who were in Egypt, like when the when uh, the, the lights went out from all of Egypt, the Israelites could still see perfectly fine. And so that's what they're going to experience is protection from the wrath of God with this seal. What it doesn't protect them from is being martyred or persecuted, but it does protect them from God's wrath because God's wrath was taken out on Jesus. And so once you are a follower of Christ, you do not experience his wrath. Does that make sense? You still experience the consequence of sin and the evil that people do, but not his wrath. Okay. So God still made his people okay. And what I wanted you to see in this is that um, this is important because Israel is on, always on God's heart. And uh, it's, in fact, here's the list of people. And this is why I'm like, why would we go all through the trouble of listing out all the tribes of Israel if it wasn't actually in Israel to deal with? Now, what tribe is missing? Let's see if we can play this game. Dan is missing. Alexander, way to go, star student. All right, so Dan is missing. Why is Dan missing? Dan is missing because, well, here's my theory. God didn't tell me this, or this is just my, my theory. Uh, it's that whenever the Israel and Judah split, Judah kept Jerusalem, which had the temple, and so uh, the, the northern tribe needed a place to worship, so they placed a golden calf in Dan, and this is what they said. Here's the God that delivered you out of Egypt, this golden calf. Sound familiar? 
to what happened at Mount Sinai with Moses, and they did the exact same thing. If that isn't Satan's work, I can't say what is. Anyway, so, so you've got Dan not included, and I think that's the reason, but you've got Judah leading the way. That's Jesus' tribe, yay, line of Judah. Uh, that's their mascot, the lion. All right, and then you've got Levi, all right? Jeans is their mascot. I'm, I'm kidding. All right, sorry. That's... That is terrible. All right, so Levi is obviously there, the, the royal priesthood of, of Israel, and usually they are interspersed throughout all the rest of the Israelites, and here they're sort of denoted as their own thing. And then uh, replacing Dan is Joseph gets two tribes. He gets Manasseh, that's his son Manasseh, and then Joseph, it's not Ephraim here because Ephraim, that tribe did some specific evil, but Joseph from Genesis is remembered here in Revelation because God's promises never failed. He would get a double portion of the inheritance. Isn't that cool? Okay, that's like for free on your Bible trivia. All right, so here's, but here's what this means for us is that we are sealed, okay, sealed. Differently, but sort of the same. We're sealed from God's wrath today. God's wrath against us went on Jesus. So when it comes to specifically, you've said this, it must be because of something I did that this thing went wrong. And we've all had moments like that. And what I want you to see is that the sealing, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, when God gives you his Holy Spirit on the day that you believe, the moment you believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, you get a baptism of the Holy Spirit and it gets on you and in you and you can't lose it, which is so valuable and so important, so important for the security of our salvation so that we can't lose it because we didn't do anything to get it. Okay? Now, here's what happens for us as Christians, right? Can I just tell you at least what happens for me? When it comes to my Christian life, especially in my 20s, what I would do is I'd reiterate the fact that Jesus saved me, and I would go back to my salvation moment, okay? And maybe, and I, I think I've been hammering this a lot lately, so let me just beat a dead horse. Because what happens Christian, to us as Christians culturally is we go back to when we were eight years old or five years old or, shoot, when you're a teenager or whenever it is that you got saved, and we go, look, Jesus saved me from the penalty of my sin. Hallelujah. And I, you should say hallelujah to that. Hallelujah, you got saved. You are free from sin. But what happens is somewhere along the lines, shame can kick in. And what happens is that you still sin. You're like, what? I must be broken. I still do the same things that I did before, and I still have, I have a Holy Spirit. I just feel worse about myself. In fact, I feel like I'm a worse person than I was before because now I, now I understand what I should be doing, and I don't want to do it, but I'm still doing it anyway. What is wrong with me? In fact, there's a whole chapter in Romans, Romans 7, that talks about that. It says, who will save me from this body of death? I don't understand what I do. If I want to do, I do not do it. What I hate, I keep on doing. And then that's why Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what I did in my 20s, and I bet you a lot of you still do, and I have a tendency to go back to. Here it is. It's like, I'm good. You're good. Let's talk about we're not going to hell anymore. Hooray. Let's create our holy huddle, and we're not going to talk about any of our sin, any of our darkness, any of that other stuff. We're going to be above it all because we're so awesome, okay? And then what happens is your life implodes because the power of sin is in its secret, okay? The power of sin is in its secret, which is why all the time, if you are, in, if you are involved in any sort of discipleship for more than five minutes, we talk about confession and repentance over and over because you don't need to just be saved from the, the moment, like your, your salvation. It's the sanctification of overcoming fear. Fear of what? I don't want you to know that I still struggle with anger. 
I don't want you to know I still struggle with trying to impress you and make you think I'm funny. I'm funny. Laugh. Like what? Well, that really worked. All right. <laughs> I, there, there's this part of me that like, I want that desperately for you to like me, for you to come on, please, or lust, or whatever the, the, the sin du jour is. And when what happens is we don't want it to be exposed, because if we were to be exposed, people might question, you're not really a Christian. And no, the reality is, and we, so what happens is we run from God, and we run from the people of God, we run from church. And I need you to hear me, I need you to hear me. Here's evidence of real salvation, is when you sin, you run to God, not away. Because of course you will. That's 1 John 1 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 9, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That forgiveness is not your salvation. That forgiveness is your drawing close and feeling close to God. Talk to somebody literally this morning, this morning between services. It went like this. I feel burnt out and fried. I know I haven't talked to God in a while. I know I need to, but I just can't. And I'm like, that's the mentality of a person that feels shame. Because if you're going to go to God, you're going to probably feel like you're doing, you've been doing wrong. You've been blackballed. God doesn't want to be close to you. You're too dark now. That's the mentality of flesh-based thinking that says, I've got to be good enough. And I did it. For all, well, anytime I would, I would screw up in, in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and then I'd be like, oh, I'm going to start all over. And I'd move down to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. And then I'd do the same thing, the same sort of lust and struggle and anger and betrayal. And I'd Mess it up. And then I go to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And then I go to Camp Casey, Korea. And then I go to Fort Carson, Colorado. And then I go to Iraq. I'd be all over the world redoing my same issues all over again with a new set of people because I was never known. And it wasn't until I was finally in seminary and at a church and stuck it in and people, like all my sin and stuff just eventually came out and I couldn't leave. Because this is what we do, right? I mean, this is how we, we do it. We, we go, we get around a bunch of people, we do something wrong, I don't want them to know, I hide it, and when they find out, we just say, listen, I'll just part ways here, make this a quiet exit, and I'm out. And listen, I know this, this is just how men are, okay? I, I'm sure women are similar in some ways, but men, as we get older, we have fewer and fewer and fewer friends. Because we don't want anybody in. If they ever know what's really going on, it's just a lot of work, and people, a lot of judgment. I'm going to hear about all the advice they're going to give me, and I don't want to hear it. So we don't, because we've never been trained how to have friends. We've never been trained how to deal with sin. And so I want to train you that the way we do is when you have sin, you confess your sins one to another and pray for each other, not give them advice. Here's a free one, right? When someone confesses sins, you don't tell them all the things they just did wrong and how they could do it better. That's, go. oh, let me pray the blood of Jesus over you, shame off you. Thank you for confessing that. That's amazing. And let the Holy Spirit do the work. That's for free. Okay. Keep moving. <laughs> the reason why we're okay is what Jesus has done in us, through us, continually. Okay? Verse 9. Now, we're going to have a shift here in verse 9. So verse 1 through 8 is all about the people on earth, the nation of Israel specifically, that have been sealed by God in like this really cool heavenly ceremony that's on earth, and they're, they're going to be living through the tribulation on earth with a little, I don't know if it's a cross on their forehead or what. They got something on their forehead. 
But then in heaven, watch this, we're going to do a scene shift to heaven. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So I want to talk about all three of these things. So listen, here's the every nation before God. And these are people that have been killed for their faith. Every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages, are during this tribulation period are going to die because of what they claim about Jesus. And that's a great multitude that nobody could number. And I want you to see how in this moment, how inclusive, and God, rec- no, this is huge, that God recognizes color, God recognizes your language, God recognizes your tribe, your country, he recognizes who, he sees you. Uh, listen, I feel like this is, this is you're going to hear this specifically, like God notices the way that you were made and he says that is good. That part of you is awesome and great. And then you never lose that identity. Did you know that? Like you don't, use your, you don't lose your color once you get to heaven. Now, what you do is you get dressed differently. Everyone gets a new uni, which I love uniforms. So I don't have to think about what I'm going to wear. That's why the army was so great. Anyway, so like if I could just wear the same thing every week up here, I would, okay? But then my wife would not be, it, never mind, that's a whole other issue. All right. All right, so clothed in white robes, all right, and they're waving palm branches. My first question was like, where do they get the palm branches from in heaven? But that's not an issue, right? So what palm branches symbolizes is like, like Hosanna. Remember like when, when Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday, they're waving the palm branches. It's they're worshiping the king. They're worshiping the lamb. And they're crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne, the elders, the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, here's what's so huge about this. And I I want to show you a picture of heaven. You know where people aren't looking? At each other. Their faces on the ground. Just as they, they can't even imagine taking in the majesty of God. Their thoughts are fully on God. Now God sees our color. God sees how we're made. God sees all that. He values all that. But their face is on the ground before the great king. And then, I love this. Then one of the elders addressed me. Which, you know, like you've got this great procession and the one guy that's sort of in the back starts talking. Hey, <laughs> who are these clothed in white robes? And we know that this is, you know, like, he's like, who are the people in the white robes? To which, you know, that's all that are there. And it's a multitude that no one can number. And then John, who's is like, sir, you know, this is awkward. You're, you're making me look kind of silly. And then he says to him, watch, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So they are being saved out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they have made them white in the blood of lamb. So every color of person, every language, every nation, 
blood red has given the new uniform of white. And that's what's so great is that Christ's blood makes our differences okay. No, no, you got to hear this. this. This is the part where I feel like, especially in a divided time when everybody sort of freaks out by the way people vote, the way people wear a mask or don't wear a mask or wear a mask in your car, whatever, whatever the things are. <laughs> There's no judgment there. All right, the reality is like we can kind of see some things that we're so like wanting desperately to help people understand that what's going on. But there is, even Christians can have, listen, husbands and wives battle politically, but you're one. And I think when I've seen that, it's a great picture of the church that we're one. And yet Christ calls us to work out our differences and love each other because of the blood of Jesus. (laughs) I had, a, um, I had a meeting with you know, a bunch of pastors. It's kind of like, I think a bunch of pastors getting together. It's kind of like you going to your community group and you talk about your work and all the people that you work with. And when pastors get together, we just talk about you guys. Yeah, you know, that's kind of how that works. So uh, you know, everyone's like, oh man, it was, a, it was a couple weeks ago. And like, everyone's venting. Oh man, the race issues are so big. I don't know how we're going to deal with this. And the other guy's like, oh, man, I just got called all sorts of names about our mask policy. And this other person's like, I got an EGR, which if you don't know what an EGR is, that's an extra grace required person. You know, that, so <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's where you got to give a lot of extra grace on top of the grace you're giving because that person can be really challenging. And so they, they, they're just like really just sort of having a moment where they're talking like you would about your job. And uh, I'm feeling all the way to this, and I'm, it, it just, I don't know, it's just heavy, you know? And it wasn't even supposed to, we were supposed to, we were supposed to talk about like, the vision of the association and where we're talking about all the churches that were planted from one church, how are we all going to keep planting churches and doing great things for Jesus? And we had the meeting before the meeting, which is just people talking, and ends up going for like 20 minutes. And, and then one of the pastors goes, Chris, you really really said anything. I'm like, man, <laughs> we're not going to solve this in 20 minutes. And it's just exhausting. And then I go, let's look at Revelation 7. I know one day that this, all this stuff that we're battling over that causes, it's one thing when like it's, you know, non-Christians are battling the Christians. It makes me go, yeah, let's fuck, yeah, stand up for Jesus. But when Christians are battling Christians, it's the most defeating thing in the world. It's just like, well, what are we doing? And I can't wait for a time we don't focus on what makes us so different but focus on what connects us all and that is our common salvation that's why i love this passage is the people aren't looking at each other they're looking in worship and they're thinking about god and when you look and think about god it affects the way you treat people because listen to me it takes the same amount of blood to save you as it does me it takes the same amount of blood to save a rich person as it does a poor person it takes the same amount of blood to save a black person or a white person. It takes the same amount of blood to save a Republican or a Democrat. That's just, that's just the reality of, 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 of who Jesus is and what he has done. And if we make it anything more than that, it's going to really cause a rift in the heart of God because we're watching, we're, it's brothers and sisters battling. And trust me, I have four sons and they fight all the time. And there are times where I make, make my boys hug each other, you know, for like 20 minutes. Stand there hugging. Longer. I feel like we need to have a big hug it out moment with all the people that you've been visceral at on Facebook. Okay. 
But I feel like that's the heart of God, that we need to really just help our hearts grow in this movement of God to push the agenda of God forward, which is to save the world, as opposed to battle about stuff that doesn't matter. All right, watch this. Verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And this is huge. Remember, these are people who have been martyred for their faith. These people have just been through it, and it felt like um, nobody was there for them. When they were being tortured, it was, it was not working out. When they were starving, they, you know, they asked God for bread, and it didn't come. But watch. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And again, when you read the Bible, you go, okay, every tear from their eyes. Okay, that's nice. That's a really sweet thing to talk about. Okay, moving on. No, every tear. That's a lot of tears. Remember, there's a multitude that nobody can number from every tribe, every language, every nation, every tear. Because here's what's so crazy about God, and this is what this just blows my mind. He is transcendent, which means he's outside space and time. Does that make sense? He's like much, he knows the beginning from the end, and he can be in both places at the same time because to him, he's just bigger than we are and infinite and not finite, okay? But at the same time, he is imminent. That's why he's called Emmanuel, God with us. He's imminent. He's in the moment. That's why when Jesus came, when the thing that never changed about God was his character. But you know what did change about God? His chemical makeup. There was a time when the only thing God was was spirit. And he became a man. Flesh and bone and is a man to this day. It's like, it's like you wanted to save a bunch of fish because you loved your fish and you became a fish and you could never go back. It's like, well, the toilet's looking good. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of how I would view the dead fish. They're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're not going to make it. We'll get some new fish. We'll get some new ones in here. But no, what Jesus did, is he said, I want to save the people that I made for God so love the world, you and me, that he gave his only son, that whoever believe in him will not perish but have eternal life and that's the beauty he changed the chemical makeup of god to insert humanity so he became a man and that um he indwelt among us oh think about that what that means and then he's in the job of tear wiping he's in the job of comforting woundedness hurt you know it's not because there's i mean you're in heaven so be grateful like listen yeah, it was bad, but you're in heaven now. No, no, it's bad, and I want to make sure I wipe your tears. No, no, th- with me, because I think for some of you, you're like, your life's not as bad as it was. It's not traumatic as it was. You're not in the middle of whatever that trauma is, and you still have some tears that need to be wiped, because every time we come up with that situation, it, that, those tears come back, and that pain arrives, and all of a sudden, we paint the world with, I'm still a victim of whatever that thing was. And, G- and if you don't let Jesus, look at, listen to me. If you don't, Jesus, wipe, let, let him wipe those tears from that past thing that happened when you were a teenager or that past thing that has happened to you because he knows what it's like to experience pain. Remember, this isn't like a, um, a sympathetic Jesus who's just like, wow, that must have been really hard. No, no, this is Jesus who becomes a man and climbs on a cross. And it's the cross, you're just like, yeah, okay, it's bad. I mean, but people die all the time. 
way worse ways than a cross. But what made Jesus' death on the cross unique was there's this moment where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, there's a separation between the Father and the Son, just splitting across the atoms of the world, and there's a separation of love. There's a separation as he experiences the full wrath, the full pain. He absorbs it all for you, for me, individually. And that's why, watch this, in the end, it will be okay. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. Hear me. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Because I get it. There's things going, listen, when you have children, it's like you can only be as happy as your least happy kid. All right? Do you guys know that? <laughs> that you're just forever connected. If one of your kids is having a bad day, you're just like, ah. And that's why you ask them, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? And that's why they go, stop asking me how I'm doing. And you're just like, are you sure you're okay? Are you sure you're okay? Because you do that. Why? Because you can't, you're tied. You're forever tied to him. And that's where Jesus is forever tied to his children. And he does care about the way you're feeling, even if your feeling is not based on rationality. Fair? Because a lot of us have teenage wounds. Or maybe we got them when we're 40, but we have teenage wounds and we're still seeing the world as it's you know, playing this bad trick on us and it's us against the world and we can't trust people because we're envisioning what happened then to what's going to happen now. And this gets back to this, this place for this email that I got and man, um, my heart just sort of broke for this person. And I, my hope is that I get to meet this person. I hope that we get to sit down, have coffee and like talk it over and maybe cry a lot through it. And what I, I, was, I sent an email back, and it sent, essentially went like this. It's like, listen, um, the reason we're all battling death, whether it's daughters or grandfathers, we're all battling death. And it's been plaguing us for forever. It wasn't designed like that. We weren't supposed to cry like this. But God created the earth perfect. He created people perfect. And even in perfection, we still wanted, we couldn't help but push the red button. God gave one rule, don't eat from that tree. And it was like, have to. And even in that rebellion where it says, I don't believe you, God, that what you have is good for me, right? I, don't be I believe the lie that I won't actually die. I believe the lie that you're holding out on me. And then with Jesus, the way that we are saved is by believing rightly. So we believe wrongly, which led us into a whole world of sin where it was inherited from person to person. And just the whole creation groans with a waiting for God to return and make things right. And that's why Jesus steps into it. He doesn't you know, sympathetically say, that's really too bad. You should really try harder. He empathizes. He feels it literally on the cross. He feels it literally as a man. He feels that he's tempted in every way, yet without sin. And that is the beauty of it. He gets it. So when we say like, this is what I've been dealing with, he's like, I get you. I'll take that. And so the heartbeat is then, is that Jesus dies on the cross, he's raised from the dead, and so our hope can never be in living forever on this side of heaven because it's a 100% chance you're gonna die. It's just a matter of when. Everybody here is terminal. Everybody is. And that's why the world is so broken because as, as great as you've lived your life, as great as you take care of your body, it's still gonna break down. 
You could be organic from birth to death and you're still going to die. Like you could be very irritating at every meal and not eat what anybody else is eating and still die. You could have your own little meal in your own little plastic bag that you're just taking everywhere. It's like three leaves and a piece of kale. And that you will still die. I'm sorry, is that too much? All right, the point is, is that you, no matter how well you take care of you, you are still not going to make it. And that's why everybody is trying to get like brain nets and upload their brain into the cloud because we all want immortality. We all want to live forever. And Jesus already solved that. And so my hope and my, my email back was that the problem's been solved, but you've got to trust him. And it gets really hard when it comes to your kids because you're like, no, no, I don't mind if I have to die. I don't mind if I have to experience pain, but if my kid, I can't watch them suffer. I can't watch them. And that is truly horrific. But Jesus, but God the Father had to watch his son suffer on a cross, experience rejection, experience sin, experience all that for us. And so, in the end, everything's going to be okay when we have faith in our Jesus. And that's the story here of the end times of people who have been persecuted or even martyred and killed for their faith, that they had to trust that everything was going to be okay and it was worth it in the end, that in the end, it would be okay. So my question then for you is, will you be okay? And if you're not a Christian here, listen, if you're not a Christian, if you're like, ah, Chris, I appreciate you're a pastor. You, of course, have to say that. Um, I want you to put your trust in Jesus. And uh, can I just be honest with you? I, had a, I was doing some counseling uh, with a couple. And I said, listen, will you please put your trust in Jesus? You cannot forgive your spouse uh, who's cheated on you unless you receive what Jesus did for you. And we went through this, I, mean, I, I spent about 30 minutes talking about how you need to, to forgive, you know, you got to forgive your spouse. And then at the end of, the, of, of my rant that I probably should have cut 20 minutes shorter, she just asked real simply, so how do the secular people do this? Like, I don't want to do the accepting Jesus and I don't want to do the forgiving thing. How can I just get him to do what I want him to do and not have him cheat on me and have him treat me the way he's supposed to treat me? And I said, you get divorced. Because that's how secular people do it. You get away from toxic people and you just declare someone to be toxic and you're done. You're free. No harm, no foul. There's no God. There's no, no reason to live covenantally because the whole world's based on transactional relationship. And I think that's the struggle, right? If we're, that's what makes Christians different. That's why I want to tell every non-Christian, stop getting married. Why are you getting married? Like you're signing up for something you can't do. You're saying, I'm going to live richer for poorer sickness and, and in health, better for worse, except for when it gets worse, except if they get sick in the head or get angry or frustrated. or Like we have all these things that we say that we don't mean. Stop saying stuff you don't mean. That's why marriage is a Christian institution. And when you try to make it not Christian, you change its whole meaning. It's like a different name. Call it something else. I don't mind lifelong partner person that I'll divorce or get rid of whenever I'm tired of you. That's fine. And, and I think if we can wrap our head around that, it will change everything because that's how God loves us. He says, you're okay, not because of what you can do or what you bring to the table. You're okay because of me. So get your eyes on me. Get your eyes on, the, on Jesus who is going to 
perfect it all and he's going to do a work in you. But if you take your eyes off him and you start trying to fix somebody else, then what ends up happening is you miss out on the greatness of who God is. And so this morning, um, I want to take a moment for us to take communion. And if you're not familiar with communion, it's kind of like a little ritual that, that Christians do. And the reason why we do it is because Jesus told us to. That Jesus, um, when he was hanging out with his disciples, uh, he took bread. And on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, your soul feeds on Jesus like your stomach feeds on this bread. And that same night he took the cup he said, this is my blood shed for you and for all for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I did for you on that cross. I took on hell for you. And it cost him his life. And it cost him hell. And if you're not a Christian, this is like, uh, don't take communion. This is what Christians do. But, but if you are, if you're ready to take a step over that line of faith and say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me personally, and he's going to wipe away my tears, and he's going to take all the shame and the pain and the hurt and the angst and the frustration, he's going to take it away from me. Would you take communion with us today? So we're going to pray, and then we're going to take about 30 seconds to confess sin privately to God, and then we're going to take communion together. Can you guys do that with me? So let's go before the Lord, Father in heaven. I know there might be somebody here who does not know you. And God, I pray that they would make a decision today that would result in salvation. They would say, God, I'm sick of my shame. I'm sick of that pain. I, I'm sick of the conflict that I have between me and others. I want you, Jesus. I want to focus and put my whole heart on who you are. So God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on that cross. And I believe that you rose from the dead. Holy Spirit, come into my heart and make me the person you want me to be. God, would you do that for somebody here today? Somebody watching online. And Father, I pray that um, for people here who've been living this thing out and got stuck, that Jesus, you would do a great work in them. That Father, you would um, shelter them, you would wipe tears. You'd help them process trauma and darkness and pain and sickness. And God, you would do an amazing gifted work, God. Lord, would you bless, keep, cause your face to shine on those who are bringing their sins to you to be reminded of the forgiveness they have in you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for that. We need your grace to move this morning. Help us to be restored in relationship to you and to others as we seek you out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Take 30 seconds to personally confess sin to God and we'll go together and take the Lord's Supper.